May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. As most of you know, the other week we had about 25 or so adults and kids from around the area in the REC go on a canoe trip. And after driving out of our busy metropolis, we made our way about an hour and a half up the road to Bastrop. And one thing that always amazes me when driving up that direction is how quickly that you can enter into another world. You leave the busyness of everything. You leave the the traffic jams of the area. And suddenly you're transported to the quiet and solitude of the country. And as we got on to the river and after about 10 minutes of trying to make sure everyone was good and telling some kids how to paddle so as not to run into the banks of the river, this change as to where we were was made even more evident. Nothing but trees surrounding us. Quiet solitude. A gentle current of the water. No noise. No houses. No traffic. And as we paddled along, I remember saying to my son how good it was to detach, to relax, and to just look at and enjoy everything that God created. And I remember reflecting within myself about a verse in the Psalms which expresses how creation doesn't have a voice, but yet it is heard everywhere. In particular, it says this, they, meaning the things of creation, speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. Those words come from the psalm that we read this morning, in particular that of Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is penned by the the great psalmist, the great shepherd, the great king, King David. And he begins this psalm with a great proclamation. The opening verse says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Now, we don't know the background to the psalm, meaning whether there was a particular situation that lay as the spark of inspiration for it, such as when David writes some of his other psalms. But it's quite likely that there was no precipitating event for these words. There's simply a moment of personal reflection whether it be in David's youth or whether it be in David's old age. As David is a shepherd, you can fully understand the infatuation that he might have with creation, sitting under the stars at night with his sheep, beholding the heavens above, the stars, the expanse, the firmament, as the scriptures translate it. And during the day, transitioning from pasture to pasture across the mountainside and the plains, And David beholds the great glory of God. And with pen and parchment in hand, he expresses his heart and his mind. The heavens, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. There's something about the speech of creation, isn't there? And there's something about the truth of God that it declares. I mean, if you think about it, When people create memes on the internet, Facebook, Twitter, etc., 
what often is found in the background behind the verse or the quote or the words of inspiration. It's usually a picture of some aspect of creation, a mountain, a river, the sky, the ocean, a tree, an animal, and so on. Creation may express power. Creation may express peace. Creation may express care. For example, next week in our gospel lesson, we'll hear how Jesus himself uses creation, the birds of the air, the lilies of the field, to express the truth of God's care for us. The vastness of creation expresses the vastness of God and the vastness of his truth. And we all instinctively understand this. As Paul said in Romans chapter 1, that through creation, the attributes of God are made evident to all men, such that no man is without excuse. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Now, having this verse and this thought of David's in our forefront of our minds, let me speak for a few moments about God and creation. Despite the boldness of man, especially in recent times, to claim to work the works of God, despite our scientific and technological advances, despite those who seek to clone humans or animals, despite such machinery designed to move the ground or to build towers to the skies, despite such tools built to behold the galaxies, despite launching rockets to reach distant planets, everyone must admit that no man can, could, or will ever be able to create that which is around us. No man could create the earth. No man could stretch out the heavens. No man could illuminate the stars. No man could align the planets. No man could ever set the sun in its place in the heavens. And while those who wish to deny the presence of God, or even admit that there is a God with a small g, while they may attribute it all to some sort of impersonal force or coincidence or accident that formed it, we whose heart the Lord has drawn to himself, We whose eyes the Lord has opened to see, we whose minds he has filled with understanding, we see the glory of God. We see the finger of God at work. We see all around us the canvas of God's masterpiece. For it is the Lord and the Lord only that has made the heavens and the earth. It is God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who worked the creation. Not by chance or even by some divine influence, setting only the seed in motion, but by setting each thing in order according to his own wisdom and will. Man according to man, animal according to animal, plant according to plant, each kind according to each kind. As John says in his gospel when speaking of Jesus' divine nature as the word of God, he says, through him all things were made. And without him was not anything made that was made. And again, St. Paul says in Colossians, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. And such an understanding and a testimony is important. 
Creation declares the glory of God. And God is the author of it all. Now, some may say, and I've heard people say this, so I know it, does it really matter how we approach creation? Does it matter if we believe in evolution? Does it matter if we believe in old earth or young earth? And does it matter if we interpret Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 literally or as an allegory, as a symbol, as a teaching tool, if you will? And I get that it's quite convincing to embrace and understand the theories of life that have been proposed over the past century. I mean, to think of dinosaurs millions or billions of years ago is so much easier than to think of them being less than 10,000 years ago. It's easier to think of the mountains and the valleys as the products of millions and billions of years rather than to embrace a story about a floodwaters that suddenly cover the whole of the earth and rapidly change the face of it. And on top of it, we're told and taught that science should undermine the Bible, that they must somehow be diametrically opposed. And if they agree, then it can't be correct. And the only option to embrace is when science disproves the Bible, but never to see science in light of what the Bible teaches. So in some ways, you can be tempted to say, well, no, it doesn't really matter. I mean, does it really matter how it all began? Should we really fight and bicker over how old the earth is? Or should we simply say that it only matters that it all did begin? Doesn't it only matter what we do right here, right now? Let's keep our focus on the present actions that we do and forget those other things. Friends, David's proclamation about God and creation is important. And this morning, I want to point out just three aspects of how our approach to God as creator impacts our own lives. First, it matters as to our nature and who we are. Are we byproducts of some natural process? Are we merely outgrowths of cells that were somehow mashed together? Or are we the chief of creation that bears the imprint of God himself? As the scriptures declare, we are made in the likeness and the image of God. And this fact is the basis of how we value life, both in how we value ourselves, but also in how we value another. It's the basis for how we treat one another. We don't value another human being simply because we're jammed together on this planet. I mean, if such were the case, then we could ask why we don't value spiders. Or we don't value the plethora of fire ants that we seek to kill in our backyards like we value other human beings. It's because there is an inherent value that comes not from our mere existence, not simply from the the fact that we draw a breath, but rather from the value of the one who created us and the divine imprint with which he made us. The sanctity of life from the moment of conception till the final breath that we draw is all tied to understanding that God is the creator of it all. It matters secondly as to who God is and our relationship with him. And by that I mean, who is God? And what priority does God have in our life, in our life? Are we the cream of the crop? 
Are we the be-all and end-all of everything? Are we simply here to serve ourselves and to seek our own good and enjoyment? Well, the answer to that question is actually wrapped up in our understanding of creation. It comes from understanding the biblical account of creation and the hierarchy of God than man and then the rest of creation. That's the divine structure of the Adamic covenant. It's the way that God ordered it. We do not serve creation, but creation is given as a gift of God to serve us for our well-being. And we're to use creation in a godly manner to enjoy it. And likewise, God does not serve us, but we are given and created to serve God for his glory and to his enjoyment. If you remove that understanding, if you remove God as the God of all creation, who has made everything, we undermine the person and the purpose and the place of God within our lives and of our lives in the place within the world. And in that case, the authority of God is devalued and the authority of self replaces him. Thus, God is not God as he has revealed himself, but he is a servant of man and simply a powerless God, lowercase g, defined according to man. And friends, that's precisely what has happened as we've lost the biblical understanding of creation. And finally, our understanding of God as the author of all things matters to our future. Every week we confess something in our creeds. We say it in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. We said it just moments ago. In the Apostles' Creed, we confess the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And the Nicene Creed says it this way, the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Paul says that we will each be transformed. In speaking about the resurrection, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. However this may be, however illogical it may seem to us, The promise of God from the time of Job, who's before Abraham, until the fulfillment of Revelation, has been that of a bodily resurrection. It has been the hope and the confession of every believer, and it's been the comfort of every Christian funeral. In like manner as Jesus rose from the grave, so also our bodies shall be raised and transformed. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, no one can put together the dead and decomposing body and make it alive again. No one can piece together the parts or the ashes of those burned or those scattered or those rent asunder by a beast or some other force. No one can bring someone back to life days after their death, let alone years or decades or centuries or millenniums. It's simply unbelievable. But yet it's not so crazy. And it's not so far-fetched to the heart of faith. A heart of faith that understands that this promise comes from the very one who formed everything out of nothing. It's not so absurd a promise. 
If we understand that it is the promise of the very one who took dirt and formed bones and formed sinews and formed the flesh of man and whose spirit then breathed into the nostrils the very breath of life. Our eternal resurrection is intimately tied to our understanding of God creating Adam as the scriptures say. God is the one, the only one, who can give life to the lifeless. And if we remove God as the author and God of life, then we remove the hope that we have for the resurrection and eternal life. For if God is not the one who gives us life, then God will not be the one who raises us from the dead. You see, and what I hopefully have stressed is that it is important how we approach these things. For it's all wrapped up in who God is as creator and we as the work of his hands, as David says in another psalm. It's all important that God be the source from whence cometh all things. If we believe God to be the God of all creation... If we believe the testimony of creation to be the the handiwork of God, then we can hang all of our hopes and all of our dreams upon him and his promises. So friends, as we close our time this morning, the next time you're canoeing down the river, like we did for the youth group, or the next time you happen to be out in a field shepherding sheep like King David, or more realistically, the next time you're sitting on your porch looking at the sky, Or the next time you're driving in the country enjoying the scenery. Or the next time you venture out the four walls of your own home. Pause to reflect upon the creation of the Lord. Because as David says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.